Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Devs Do Something. So you'll notice that this week's episode is a little bit different. There was there was no little intro clip that played just before this introduction from myself. And you'll also notice that I'm actually not the one doing the interview this week. We are actually going to be featuring an interview between Patrick Collins, the uh, famous former dev advocate at Chainlink and now founder of Siphon.io, a Web3 security auditing firm, and his interviewee, his guest, Tincho, who used to work at Open Zeppelin and is a really, really good smart contract and Web3 auditor. So this episode is really all about Tincho's audit process. And, you know, when Patrick approached us asking if we wanted to feature this on Devs Do Something, it really lined up with some timing for us. And we felt that it was the kind of conversation that you, our listener, would really enjoy. So in the episode, we go through literally all things auditing, right? We talk through how Tincho literally approaches an audit. Uh, Tincho goes through how he would actually audit a live protocol, right? So Patrick uses the example of ENS. So they literally go in, look through the ENS repo, and Tincho just gives you a sense of how he, he actually approaches the process. So I thought personally, this is a fantastic conversation. I learned so much about auditing, about how just really elite smart contract engineers and, and developers think about evaluating a code base. And I think whether you want to be an auditor yourself or if you just want to get better at smart contract security or prepare your own protocol for an audit, I think you're going to love this episode and get a lot out of it. So let me know what you think. Uh, curious about you, uh, how you guys see this format in the future. We'll likely do a couple of similar things, especially around audits and uh, audit processes in the future. So sit back, relax, and uh, let us know what you think of the episode. As devs, we all love hackathons. They're a great way to boost your skill set, meet other engineers, and add to your portfolio of work. At Superfluid, we've sponsored many hackathons and decided to start putting on a hackathon of our own, the Superfluid Wave Pool. This hackathon is a little bit different though in that it's continuous, it's always open. You can submit any project built on Superfluid at any point throughout the month and have a chance to earn thousands of dollars in prizes depending on how your project stacks up. In just the last couple of months, we've seen dozens of teams build really amazing projects that run the gamut from Superfluid developer tutorials to full-fledged applications uh, to a proof-of-concept Superfluid Starknet implementation that we thought was really, really impressive. So we encourage you to check it out today. You can learn more by going to superfluid.finance slash wavepool. That's superfluid.finance slash wavepool. Happy hacking. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Today, I have a fantastically exciting guest who's going to be going over his audit process. We have lead auditor, hacker extraordinaire, damn vulnerable DeFi creator, Tincho, here with us today, who's going to be going over his audit process. Tincho, how are you doing today? Hey, Patrick. Thank you so much for having me here. Doing well, thanks. Excited, excited to be here and trying to show you like some of the things that I do. Yes, awesome. So before we actually jump into watching your audit process and watching how a pro does a, an audit manual review, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Okay. Yeah, I'm Tincho. I used to be a leader of one of the top firms in the industry, which is Open Zeppelin. I spend my time there like doing full manual reviews of top DeFi protocols and stuff. A super interesting time. Actually, before Open Zeppelin, I was a web application pen tester, so I always had this kind of information security background. Yeah, then I jumped into Open Zeppelin, grew the team, like the security team in there for almost three and a half years. And then I left and now I'm an independent security researcher, participating in contests, participating in back and doing other things for the community, always trying to make applications and Ethereum a little bit safer. Awesome. And we are incredibly grateful and blessed to have you in the Web3 community. So I, uh, you also are the creator of Dan Vulnerable DeFi, right? Yes, exactly. What is Dan Vulnerable DeFi for those who don't know? Yeah, so it's a kind of a capture the flag, the flag game. 
The them vulnerable thing is pretty well known in the web two ecosystem. You have like them vulnerable web applications, them vulnerable database, like whatever. It is kind of a safe playground in which you can actually put your skills to the test in your local environment. Like you have a home environment, a laboratory where you can put your security skills to the test. So the idea is to build them applications of whatever thing, and then you try your, your skills against them. In this case, it's a smart contract. So then vulnerable DeFi is a set of challenges in which you try to break smart contracts in your local environment, right? So you have from the very simple DeFi stuff, I don't know, like a simple lash landing pool to more complex things like TWAPs or like time logs or governance and whatever, right? So in different scenarios, you will put your skills to the test trying to understand how to break them, how to solve them. And in the process, you will get exposed to many DeFi Legos or building blocks that are super relevant today in the ecosystem, like Open Zeppelin Contracts or Soul Lady or Soulmate or many different libraries that are out there that are included in the vulnerable DeFi so that you not only, yeah, I know now how to understand this vulnerability, but you actually get real exposure to things that are used out there in like real systems. Awesome. Yeah. And so anybody out there who's looking to get into DeFi, looking to become a better smart contract, a better Solidity developer, looking to jump into auditing and security, 100%, be sure to check out Dan Vulnerable DeFi. It is a immaculate resource. So with that being said, Tincho, I think something that all of us would love to see is how your brain works. When a smart contract comes and goes, hey, here's our code. We're looking to make sure it's safe. Here you go, Tincho. What do you do? We would love to see your audit process. Awesome. Yeah. I don't have a super formal auditing process. I think lots of it, it's coming already from, from experience, from intuition. I will try to give pointers and try to walk you through things that I usually do. It doesn't necessarily mean that I always do things this way. It's usually when I try to actually explain them that I start formalizing them in some way, right? But along the way, I have been changing the way I do things. I have been incorporating new tools. I have, been, I have let go of others that I used to use. I will just show you briefly some things that I do today. And we will be using a project that I'm looking at these days, which is ENS. Probably everybody looking at this video is familiar with ENS, so probably you should be if you're not. So super interesting project on Ethereum, super important for the ecosystem, very relevant for it to be secure. We probably, all of us use it. So yeah, I will just be using the code base of ENS to show you how I would start approaching it, how I, the things that I've been doing this last couple of days. Awesome. And so that's almost maybe the first tip for people, right? You're saying like, hey, my process keeps changing. Would you say that there is a one method for auditing, one method everyone should follow? Is there a silver bullet for auditing? No, definitely. I, <laughs> I, wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say so. I really think that everybody will find their own ways in doing things. Every brain works differently. Some people might be like more willing to just read code. Some more people might be willing to just dynamically test the code or some other people might be willing I know, to draw diagrams or might be taking notes or might be using pen and paper or might be using, I don't know, some very complex note-taking system. So it really depends. I wouldn't say there is a single way of auditing something. I do think there are best practices. I do think there are recommended ways of starting. But then as you grow into the job, I would say that you will start finding the ways that are most comfortable to you. Awesome. I'll just get started. Let me share this. Hold the window. Yep. Let's share this. Perfect. So this is the repository of ENS, ENS contracts. So this is a repository for ENS. These are the contracts of ENS. I wasn't that familiar with the system prior to starting these days looking at it. So I will just use it as an example. Remember ENS does have bounty program. So if at any point in time you do find something on ENS, please do a responsible disclosure go to the ENS documentation and you will find all the rules and rewards for the backbound program that they have. So that being said, I will just use it as an example just to show you how I would approach it. Why were you looking at ENS? I'm super interested these days in, in previewing projects that are very aligned, in my opinion, very aligned with Ethereum's long-term value it. proposition. So I very much believe that ENS is one of those projects that I want to succeed on Ethereum. I have no affiliation whatsoever with ENS. I'm just an independent researcher that Got really it. wants ENS to succeed because I see value in it. And in that way, I think that 
I can provide my skills to actually make it more secure. Got it. Cool. Okay, cool. This is the repository. The first thing that I would do is obviously go to the repository. You cut the readme, make sure that you understand what this is about, like at least like very, very basics. I would clone the repository to my local environment. That's one thing that I do. I was working on like local development environment where I have my tools installed and everything. So first thing that you would do is obviously you would download this and you would open it, right? And then so you mentioned you want to get familiar with first. Let's say you're unfamiliar with ENS. Are you, are you downloading the code first still, or are you reading the docs or before you download the code, are there any steps that you take? I like no strict rules, honestly, perhaps you download the code, you look at it a little bit, but if you are like very unfamiliar, you should probably go to the documentation. At least I don't know, read the introduction, right? So understand what ENS actually means or whatever project. So perhaps that's first day. In the first day, you perhaps read a little bit about documentation, you download the code, you start getting familiar with the very basic contracts, understand the project structure, you actually identify which tools it's using, but whether it's using IO Foundry or Hardhat, then you continue reading documentation. Perhaps there is a white paper that you can read, like little by little, getting familiar with the beast that you're about to audit. I'm not the kind of guy that will just jump directly into line 523 of file X and without actually understanding what I'm reading, right? Some people might be able to do that. I'm not. So I'm a slow learner in this sense. So anyway, the, you, I would read the introduction after downloading the code. I would understand what the project is about. In here we have the architecture. It's telling us like already some keywords that we will need to understand at some point, such as what a registry is, what a resolver is, right? So already I will get familiar with this. Probably these are kind of contracts that I'm about to see in the code. In this case, it's quite well documented, right? So we have some roles that the documentation is already telling us. And perhaps during the audit, we might actually make a note about, okay, I, I do actually need to check these roles, make sure that this role is actually able to do these settings and it's not possible for anybody else to do that kind of things and so on and so forth, right? So that's the very basic. Read the introduction, try to understand what is going on. If we go to the actual code, we will realize that there are lots of things within the code base. Let me make this a little bit bigger. So there are multiple contracts. Oh, and is this VS Code? So for users who don't know, potential, what is the difference between VS Code and VS Codium, which is what you're using? VS Codium has base open source, but actually it's if they have removed some part of the, I think telemetry and some things related to Microsoft from the package. So it's actually VS Code, but with less Microsoft related stuff. So why do you use VS Codeium instead of VS Code? I don't know. I wanted to try it out. <laughs> like, no very particular reason. Nice. Excellent. Cool. Okay. Actually, I was using VS Code a couple of months ago and now downloaded VS Codeium and I'm getting familiar with it, but it's essentially the same. Um, so multiple contracts in here, you will start seeing that, okay, this is not a trivial system to look at. Already we see that lots of folders, utilities, wrappers, registries, safe map, I don't know. And there's some things related to DNS and signing and whatever. Okay. This is looking non-trivial already. Perfect. Something I would definitely expect from ENS. It's using Hardhat from what I can tell. It's not using Foundry. These days, I like projects that use Foundry more than those that use Hardhat. I know I just, I'm starting getting more familiar with Foundry and I like it. So in that case, what I would do, and that's exactly what I did here, is I created another folder in which I have a Foundry local setup. Why do you like Foundry better? Why do you make this Foundry local setup? It's faster. It has a nice faster that I can show you a few things later. And I can write quick test only using Solidity and not having to actually like use JavaScript. Okay. So if the project is not using Foundry, I will probably do this. I will create a separate folder. I have a local, very little sandbox environment. I will very hacky way. I will just copy paste code. I will import contracts. I will do whatever thing that I want to do here, but just an easy way to have something quick and dirty to test things quickly and always be into the flow of the go and audit. So that's what I did in here. And then I can show you some tests I wrote, very, very raw tests that, I, that I'm not proud of. But anyway, already we saw that it's quite complex. So what I would do in this case is, in which I, I know it's not a single file, I have multiple files in here. There is a command line utility that I would use because I like things organized. 
which is called C-Log, right? So C-Log will help you count lines of code and can help you actually organize a code base into how many files you have, which files are more important than others and so on in terms of lines, lines of code. And so I would use C-Log and it would give me a nice output that you can actually parse to a CSV. And this is the part CSV that I have after using C-Log and the, the contracts ordered by lines of code. And instead of doing this here, what I would usually do is I would move that to a spreadsheet or to whatever tool that you use to organize things. In this case, I could use Notion, for example. So in Notion, I actually did this table. I have the scope for ENS, right? All these files are now ordered here. And now I can have a better view in terms of how many files do I have, how complex they might be, right? Which is simpler, which is more complex. So apparently I have 59 files. I have to do something in terms of removing interfaces and whatnot, but anyway. And now I know, okay, probably this will be the name wrapper will be the one of the most complex contracts perhaps, right? Because it has more than 700 lines of code. And then the universal resolver and blah, 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 right? And then I have a column stating to some extent where the thing that I'm doing is not started, it's in progress or it's done, okay? So that helps me being focused on the thing that I want to do at this very moment, which is analyzing around this contract, which is the FIFS registrar. I haven't started it. If I started, I will put it in progress. Perhaps at some point in time, I will start looking at this, but I didn't finish the other, so I will put this in progress. It's not necessarily the case that once one is done, then you move to the other, then you move to the other, right? It's just a way of having a single place where I know, uh, where I can understand my progress. When you do this alone, it might seem silly, but when you work in teams, at least in my experience, having this sort of table, having a centralized place and shared place in which you can track each other's progress is quite important, right? Because you probably want to know what parts of the system the rest of the team has seen, what part of the system they have already covered, what parts of the system they still are working on, and so on, right? So having a place to track progress of the audit, at least for me, is quite relevant. This is something that I always did, and I even do it when I'm working alone, right? Again, I'm not super strict with it. It's just a nice thing that I do. Now, Tincho, when you create a file like this, it almost leads me to think that the audit process is linear, right? Because as you right. mark off done, like you get to the end, you're like, oh, cool, I'm done. I've always found that it's almost never linear for me. Like a file that I go, yep, this looks good to me. Later on, I learn some business requirement. I go, oh, wait, no, that's actually not done. Yep. How do you take that into account when you're doing this linear process? As I was saying before, I'm noticed, like, I would even tell you that as the audit progresses, I will be less and less focused on this file, on this table. It's not that at some point I will, like, on day three, I will make sure this is but probably it won't be the case because probably this is super complex and will be related to either this one or this one. At some point, perhaps you have like multiple files in progress at the same time and that's perfectly fine. And it doesn't necessarily mean that because this is a table and I have a status column for each one of them, I will be done and then I will walk to the next and that will be done. That's not the case. That's probably the case for the simpler ones because they are probably more self-contained. So at some point you will feel like, I don't know, a self-contained library for doing know, some weird encoding thing is done because you already audited it and it's very much limited and encapsulated and you know it's done because now you have how it works and you can treat it as a black box from now on during the rest of the audit. But for the most complex contracts, that's probably not true. And as you were, as you were saying, there are many points in time in which you have to analyze contracts in like a system, right? So they are interconnecting to each other, they are interacting with each other. And there is no way perhaps in which you can mark this only as done when it interacts with multiple others and you're thinking of like more complex attack vectors. So again, it's not that I follow strictly this table and this framework of putting things done. It just keeps, it helps me being accountable to myself, perhaps even to my team, but most of all, it's very useful, at least for me, at the beginning of the audit, just to understand what am I looking at, how many lines of code, which are the most complex contracts, and so on. Probably I can even start thinking of a plan to approach the code, like a very rough plan that I could make in the first days. And even if you're working in a team, we can even divide the code by looking at this table. 
But then probably as the audit progresses, we will care less and less about the progress in this step, right? We won't care too much whether this or this is actually in progress or done or how much is done, how much is in progress, right? And then with this too, Ticho, if you're doing a team audit, is it a good idea to divide the code up? If I, it, mentally, I feel like if I divide the code up, I'm not going to have context for some part. So is this another kind of take it by depending on the project or how often do you like divide the code up if you're working on a team? I will say it probably depends on how much you can actually divide the code, right? So you have co-wishes that are very much entangled and all contracts are talking to each other and everything. So in that case, in those cases, probably it won't be that easy to split to a divide and conquer strategy. And probably at that point, you will have to be everybody looking at everything. Um, but if you're working, I don't know, in a team of four people, you can actually, and you have self-contained libraries of things that seem quite contained and encapsulated, perhaps you can do like team, like sub teams of two, right? So perhaps some library will be deeply looked at by two auditors and then the other two auditors will just peer review or ask questions or try to understand it on a more high level view. And then they like do cross reviews or whatever. But for the most complex contracts, for, for the most complex interactions, for the most important user flows, I always like having all auditors look at everything. So it's, I would say it's more usual the case in which I participated in team audits and everybody looked at everything than cases in which we actually split the code and some people never looked at anything. Gotcha. Makes sense. Okay, cool. I don't want to focus too much on this table because it's super simple. Like I, it shouldn't be an overhead. It's just a quick thing that I do on the first half an hour of the audit and that's it, right? So it shouldn't be complicated and it's actually not necessary for everybody. Another thing that you can do, which can actually help you have a stronger sense of how complex this is. Another approach to do this kind of a scoping phase, you can actually use this tool by consensus, which is called Solidity Metrics, right? So you can run it on a project and it will actually give you a quite nice report of the code base and it can actually help you scope a code base and understand what's what's its level of complexity. At least in the first day, that could be useful. For this case, for ENS, I did it and you, it's massive and there's so much information that sometimes it's even hard to read. But again, you have the contracts in here and you have how many lines it has. It actually gives you a complexity score. I don't know exactly how this, this is calculated, but you can actually, I don't know, try to make some sense out of it. And it gives you some capabilities that the contract might have. Like, for example, this is telling you that this one is using a hash function. And this is telling you that, I don't know, this has a payroll function and whatever. Again, we're not even looking at code, just trying to make sense of how complex the thing is. And then it gives you some cool graphs. I seldom use this, but yeah, it's here. You have the number of exposed functions, capabilities, when it's telling you the solidity versions in here, the dependencies that it's using. Okay, perfect. One thing that you can do also after reading some documentation is looking at audit reports, right? So it's quite important to make sure that you really understand some vulnerabilities that happened. So this is the ENS report from Code Arena. And one thing I did is, okay, I got familiar with the high risk findings that I found reported. So that makes sense in the sense that I want to understand what kind of attacks people are thinking of on ENS. Some things I didn't understand, but that's perfectly fine. I will probably get more familiar with it as I go into the audit. Once I have this table, I will probably start with things that are simpler. That's how I like starting. I usually start with the little Legos and then I go move up in complexity. It doesn't necessarily mean that I go up in, in terms of lines of code, but I do go up in terms of complexity. And okay, I will start trying to audit the ones that are simpler so I can then just forget about them and treat them as black boxes. So I just can remove that complexity from my head and actually start building the whole mental model of the system just from the little pieces that I've been going over. So in this case, I will probably, I don't know, start with the ERC-20 recoverable contract, which is what I did, right? So here it is. And it's quite short, right? So you see it's own. I would say, okay, it's ownable. It's inherited from open sampling. As an auditor, probably I can take that for granted, which is out of the scope. And I will assume that's working correctly. And it has a single function to recover funds. It, okay, it has access control. So this is probably fine as long as they are handling access and controls in the right way. This is fine. So no, not everybody can record funds. And it's actually doing this, right? 
And at this point, as an auditor, you will say, okay, so anybody can, sorry, not anybody, but all, only the owner can actually remove any funds that are stored in whatever contract inherits from ERC-20 recoverable. Probably this is a contract that will be used as a, in an inheritance chain. And as an auditor, you might start wondering where this is good for any token out there, right? Where it's possible to actually execute a transfer on any address that the owner passes here and where it could be problematic for ill-behaved ERC-20 tokens. And if you're familiar with USDT, for example, that would be problematic in this case. Because when you cast ERC, I don't want to get too deep into the detail, the technical details, but anyway, people should be careful when casting whatever address to an ERC-20, to this ERC-20 interface, because you have tokens that might be not fully compliant with this interface. And that perhaps there might be problems if you try to interact with uh, using this interface. That's just putting that out there. And then when you see that only owner function, do you think, okay, is this a DAO? Is there a single person who controls? Is that something that kind of goes to your mind too? Or are you usually, okay, only owner, there's some centralized control somewhere. Maybe I don't worry about that too much. Or what are your thoughts? At least at the beginning, I wouldn't worry about it too much. At some point, I will read documentation about the roles of this, because usually in a, like a reader report, you will write about the roles that there are and the powers that they have and everything. So I, I won't like worry too much at this point. There is an only owner. I already know nobody other than the owner should call this. So the surface of attack is seems to be rather reduced. But yeah, at some point, if this has a governance, or I should probably understand at some point who's the actual owner and what are the dynamics in which this function could be called. Yeah. Okay, let's say that you think that this is okay. So what I would do usually is I would take notes in the code, right? So in this case, I would say like access control, okay. For example, just to have a note in the code saying that I was here, like reminding myself in the future that I was here, that I wrote, that I saw this and that I, that I thought something interesting about this. In this case, perhaps you can say, okay, I agree with this function having an only owner. So I just put myself an explanation that say, and that's the accent control. It's okay. Let's say you can write that or you can write whatever thing, right? Or you can have a question like Patrick said. So you can have a question saying, is this governance, right? So whatever tag is helpful for me to actually come back to this and have and be easier to find in the future. So I saw some people actually doing audit question and writing something, whatever is useful for you. But I do know many auditors use this technique of writing comments in the code and that's super good to uh, let's say this was an issue so i would do this right so this is an issue I shouldn't be i don't know let's say shouldn't be owner whatever because i don't know i read some something right perfect so i do take notes in the code another thing that i do to take notes is actually have notes files in the same place so these are so, like very raw notes very brief quick notes having a file where i can quickly dump ideas that I have, right? So in this case, I was reading ENS and I was taking quick notes of things that you can store in an ENS node, right? So I was saying, okay, the AVI definition and I went to the AVI resolver contract then to this and this, right? Whatever you, can, you want to write. At some point, if things go well, I would have an issues list here and I will start listing, I don't know, in line, blah, 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 or file, blah, 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 right? So I would list issues. You can actually have to do so You can like whatever you want to write in here. It's all local notes, but it's something that I like having very uh, close to me. So I can like quickly dump ideas and move on with other things, right? Some people do use like more complex note-taking systems. That's not my case. I use a simple markdown file and whatever, and that's it. I use like pen and paper as well. I have always a notebook right next to me and I write ideas there. And another thing that I might do at some point is draw some diagrams, but I will show that later. One thing that I should also mention is I don't use any plugins. As you will see, like there, I don't use the Visual Studio Auditor plugin or whatever you use. Like it's just the plain solidity syntax. That's because I don't like having the UI clutter too much with stuff, right? That I don't fully understand what it's trying to tell me. So in my, in my case, I just take local notes, write things on the code, but I don't use any fancy plugins nor anything. I do. I know some people use it and it's perfectly fine. And if you find it comfortable for your workflow, go ahead. That's just not my case. Mm, perfect. 
So once I have covered this, probably I will start marking it done, 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 and done, right? So the less complex stuff. At some point during my explorations, I realized there was this, for instance, public resolver contract that I was reading. I don't know why I got here. Probably by reading documentation, I actually landed on this contract. And I saw this, right? Public resolver and is inheriting from all of these contracts. I'm following this idea of, okay, I probably won't understand what the public resolver is if I cannot still know what this app in the inheritance chain are, right? So following this idea of start with the little Legos and then move on to the complex things. In my head, I said, okay, I won't audit the public resolver yet because it, it's quite, but it's not, it doesn't seem to be that complex, but it has lots of hidden functionality between, behind like all of these contracts that it's inheriting from. So what I started doing is I started going through all of the resolvers and I realized that, okay, so all the resolvers are in the same folder. They are probably related. Perhaps I can just cover all the resolvers, which seem to be self-contained contracts. And that was the case, right? So I went through the address resolver. And then I realized there was a resolver base. So I went to a resolver base and I kind of arrived to the top of the inheritance chain, probably. Then you have this ERC contract, but it's inherited from OpenSeppelin. So I will take it for granted. And I reviewed the resolver base. I took notes, whatever. It's quite simple. Here you have a note, for example, I said that this function is not called from anywhere. So I realized that this function wasn't being called by other functions in the system which might be or might not be the right thing, but just a note. And then I moved down, right? So I went to the address resolver. I understood it like blah, blah, blah. I usually, I usually go like top down, right? So line by line, where the constant being defined, they have a question in here, for example. What is this sixth? I have no idea what that is. Probably I should check that at some point. And um, then you have the server function. I realized, okay, this is access control. I would put a question, right? Is this right? Should this function be behind access control or not? At this point, I don't have the big picture of the system. So that means that I will have lots of questions around, okay, is this right? Is this, does this make sense in the bigger picture of the system? And that's the downside of working in this way, of, go, of going from the little things to the bigger things. When you are Working in the little things, you will be missing lots of context. You will be missing lots of, yeah, things, missing like lots of knowledge around what is this even doing, right? What is the, what, who's setting an address for what, in which circumstances that role will be setting an address and whatever. But that's the way I'm used to working. And I will just have lots of questions. And I, as I grow in complexity, I will be answering those as well. And one thing that you have to be careful when you start with the very little things is as for example, let me go to a DNS resolver. So I was reading the DNS resolver and I have very little knowledge of DNS, for example, right? I'm familiar with DNS. I basically know what it's trying to do, but I don't, I'm not like super familiar with the fields of an ENS, a DNS record and what does it mean and how it should be structured and the RFCs that actually define and specify the whole DNS thing. And I got like very like down into DNS because I was just paying attention to this single resolver. And that led me to realize that after, I know, two days, I was growing familiar with DNS because I was trying to audit this contract, but I was losing the big picture of actually, hey, I'm actually auditing ENS, right? I shouldn't be the expert on DNS. So it's very easy to go deep into the rabbit hole of the single thing that you are trying to audit because you only started with the very specialized library. And you are missing like the big thing, which is you are actually auditing this system, which is called DNS, and it's trying to do this and this. Another quick sample about that is that they have this error uh, utils uh, library, which is quite big, right? We're taking almost 500 lines of Solidity code. And it's very specified to parsing DNS rec resource records. So I spent, I'm spending quite some time actually reading this library and going to the specifications of, of DNS and everything trying to understand line by line what is actually doing this, right? I might spend one day auditing this library, but I still have like lots of contracts to go. And even if I understand this library fully and this library is like fully audited and I am like super confident about it, I still have no idea what DNS is doing, right? So we should be careful in the sense of it's good to go into rabbit holes. It's good to start with the, in my case, with the little Legos, but at some points you have to go up again and 
go to the documentation again, try to understand where this library fits in the bigger picture. Otherwise, it's I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's that effective. Perfect. Yeah. So I was talking about the resolvers, and I essentially started going over every resolver in here, and I realized they were quite self-contained, right? So I'm still going through the resolvers. I'm not done with them, but as I understand them, I will start having understood the building blocks to then go to the public resolver. And probably when I understand fully resolvers, I will be able to go to the ENS registry, which is a quite a, like the ENS registry contract. This is probably the one that is most important, but I haven't like still big entry. Then you have the, I think it's, con yeah. So this one is also another one important, which I was looking at, but I still didn't feel like I had everything in mind. Because I was missing some concepts, because if you go to this one, you will see that it's inheriting from the ERC-20 recoverable and then its own was and two interfaces. So you might say, okay, I already did this, like I already know about the ERC-20 recoverable, ownable is just a thing from open sampling contracts. So perhaps good small Lego, but then you realize that perhaps it's quite more complex that, than, I, than what I thought, right? Because it has like these functions that do commitments and then I don't know, they, you actually register ENS names and they interact with other contracts with the name wrapper and to understand the name wrapper, you have to do something else. So it doesn't seem that simple yet for me into the beginning of the audit to suck, right? So I will probably choose at this point other simpler contracts, perhaps continuing with the resolvers, going with other libraries, coming back to my table, understand which other ones I should be looking at, perhaps before jumping into the registry or the register controller, which are the most important ones, right? Yeah. Let's say during this process, let's say during this process, you come across something and you're like, oh, I'm pretty sure this is wrong. Yeah. What do you do? First of all, I don't know. Let me try to give you an example. But, sure. Um, yeah. Like, like maybe, yeah. Like one of these is, yeah. Like one of these functions or something is the wrong value somewhere. Or something. Yeah. I don't know. Let's say, this, let's say that this should be authorized, but it's like so you have this function, right? I realized, okay, this is missing this access control. Right? So first of all, it's like, I mark this as an issue and I would say, this is wrong because blah, 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 right? Or I will just take a quick note, whatever quickly catches my mind that this could be a code smell, I will just quickly do this or write a code smell and try to put my very rough thought that I have very quickly in, in writing, right? Because I like writing, I think by writing you. As I realize that, I might move on to my note and I will actually write something longer in here. In here, I have more room to write and to actually describe an issue. So I will start writing in the, let's say, in the ENS registry contract, blah, 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 right? And I will the issue. I won't produce the full write-up of the issue at this point, but I want to have somewhere written down my thought process of how I think this is a vulnerability, okay? If I'm in a, like, real audit, Probably I will have days in which I flesh out issues. So I will have like multiple nodes in here of issues, right? So let's say this is issues. So I have multiple nodes in here, blah, blah, blah. And someday during the week, I will be tired of looking at Solidity code and I will actually flesh out these issues that I have written here. I will go and perhaps write a test or perhaps confirm that, I, that it's actually an issue or think about it more depth and because I have fresher eyes or go with the documentation and actually expand on the issue and try to escalate the issue to something bigger. It will probably depend on the nature of the issue, how self-contained it looks like, where it might have consequences somewhere else in the code. But yeah, that's the process of having a code smell and trying to come up with the real issue. And depending again on the issue, it might be the case that this is just missing and that's fine, but it could be the case that this is missing and because I know this function is called from somewhere else, it might mean that this and this could happen in the system and the attack or the vulnerability grows in complexity. And that's quite difficult to teach, to translate into how do you actually detect that, right? Because it will probably depend on the nature of the vulnerability, how much or how knowledgeable you are already in the system, where some other auditor can chime in into your issue and help you fleshing it out. It's quite particular of each issue and it's even more complicated to the most com most complex issues, right? But yeah, that's how I go about it. If I'm working in a team, probably I will be sharing these issues in some, whatever thing I'm using to share. If I'm using Notion, 
perhaps I can go to Notion and kind of open a page in here and share it with my teammates. Or if I'm using GitHub, I can open up a GitHub issue in a private repository so my teammates can jump into it and we can have a discussion. Or if it's a very big issue, I'm super worried about it, I might jump into a call with the rest of the team to actually flesh it out together and do a line-by-line code review of a function to make sure we fully understand the issue and we can actually confirm it right away. And if it's an audit on a deployed code base, probably if you find that issue and you're very sure about it, you should be already contacting the client and telling them, okay, hey, I have this issue. I know it's the audit is not done yet, but you should probably be looking at this because it's quite important. So that's why I don't have a process. I like a formalized process. That's why I like people finding their own ways of doing things. I don't want to be constrained in ways in which an audit and an audit must be done. Find your own way, find what's most, most suitable for you, how you find it comfortable, how you find it natural for you. Probably you will find practices or things that you do that actually in hindsight, you will understand that those practices are the one that yield you like the most issues or the most effective audits and keep those, right? And be ready to reiterate and don't stick to a single process. Be flexible and be open to, to incorporate new ideas and new ways of working. Now, you mentioned something interesting there. You said, hey, I might even go back to the client in the middle of the audit. How important is that process? If you're doing a private audit, how important is the process of, of talking and interacting and, and keeping communications with the client open? I would say it's almost fundamental, right? At least for me. Usually developers will have much more context than you as an auditor on what the system is intending to do. So you can spend a whole week trying to figure out on your own where this modifier should be in this function or not. But if you actually send a question to the client and tell them, hey, should this be here or not? And they will tell you, yes, it should be here. You can see it in test, blah, blah, blah. Or you can read this documentation or whatever. They can actually give pointers to you and ease your job as an auditor. So you don't have to figure out the whole thing by your own, right? You can see them as companions during the audit and you should rely on them. Having said that, it's also important not to trust too much, right, on developers in the sense that at the end of the day, they are trusting you as the expert, as the security expert, and they may have some views or opinions or thoughts about their own code, and that might be mistaken, right? But might be misled by, the, by their own interpretations of what the code is intending to do. So in, this, in that sense, I would advise, okay, keep the clients at hand, be friendly with them, ask questions, talk to them, explain the things that you are trying to understand so that you can build knowledge together, but also be detached enough so that you can have a less contaminated view on the code. But yeah, having like summary, like having fluent communication channel with the client, it's fundamental, at least for me. Can we see some of those? And then I don't know if you're going to jump into something next, but can we see some of those foundry yeah. ugly tests or I scripts was, that you wrote? Yeah, exactly. I can show you that. Perfect. So at some points in during the audit, you will realize that you might need to test things, right? So in this case, I was looking at the address resolver in this case, and I saw these two functions, right? Internal functions, pure functions. One is going from my bytes thing, returning an address, and the other is doing the other way around. It's going from an address to writes. And you might say it's okay. You can audit this line, trying to make sure that this assembly looks fine. If you are good in assembly, like you can try to divide it, right? So you can make it a little bit nicer so you can actually read it. You can take notes and whatever. And you can have some degree of confidence that, okay, this is doing the right thing. And not only that, but also you can even dare to say that if this is working fine, then I realize this is working fine. Okay, this should be the complementary function, right? So if this, I have bytes and I go to an address and then I have an, that same address and I go to bytes applying this function, then it, I should at the end of the day get the same result, get the same bytes that I start. And you can do it manually, but if you're lazy, you can actually use Foundry to help you in that. So what I did in this case, I used my very handy hacky foundry repo that I have in here. And I actually copied these two functions to a contract, like 
I just took them, not even trying to do fancy imports or whatever, just raw copying and pasting them here. And I did a quick test, right? Like very simple uh, function test in which I provide an address. I pass that address to this first function and the result of that, I pass it to the other function. And I want to make sure that I always get the same address as a result. And that's a very like handy thing that you can do mm. using fuzzing. Foundry is that very convenient tool that easily you can plug into your workflow and run a quick test and you can do this and you can actually assert whether this is true or false and you can do far more complex things, right? So I have recently published an article about how I was passing an open sampling contracts library and so on and so forth. So having this at hand, being able to just very quickly copy things here, very quickly do the test and this actually yields a nice result. So that means that perhaps everything is okay. So then I would write a note here saying, okay, I fasted it. This looks okay for me. And similarly, another thing that I did, I think I'm, I was working on, let me see if this is done yet. Yeah. So I'm working on the DNS resolver and I'm actually like running some tests right now. So again, very handy to have it at hand. Don't be afraid of having crappy, hacky scripts in your local environment. They are really useful to test and that those intuitions that you might have. And I do that with Foundry, at least for me, is super useful. In the cases where I have to set up more complex stuff, perhaps having a separate folder with a single project is not that convenient because I would need to set up the whole ENS system right here in this Foundry environment. And that wouldn't be that convenient because perhaps I might need to spend too much time on it. So in those cases, I would go to the actual testing environment of the project. In this case, it's hard hat. Uh, what's you gonna, what you're going to do? And you can actually jump into a test, etc. the public resolver, that whatever this is. So you can see their tests. And what I would do is that if I want to test something on their system, is I will actually get in the middle of their testing suite and I would actually write a test of my own in here, right? Or you can even copy one of them and modify it and base your test on something that already exists, right? It's not that you have to build the whole thing from scratch. You can actually save time, use the already existing testing environment and actually hack your script in the middle of their testing suite so that it's easier to run. And in that way, you actually make sure that your tests are running in the same environment set up by, by the developers. Right? which is always a nice thing. If I had to set up the whole thing by my own, I might set up some things in the wrong way. And that might mean that you know some attack that I have planned in my head won't work or will work incorrectly just because I didn't have the same setup or the same initial conditions in the test, right? Jumping into existing test suites, something that I do, not that I do it that often, but sometimes when the code is too complex or when you actually have an exploit in mind, it's something that it's very convenient, right? So in that sense, it's good to, even if you don't like hard hat that much, it's good to be knowledgeable on it. It's good to know JavaScript so that you can actually write tests in JavaScript. Perfect. Questions so far? Yeah. In some cases, I found it useful to read the tests provided by the protocol team to get better understandings, especially it was useful to get the typical usage slash tokens the protocol is assuming. Yep. Do you have a similar step? Yeah. I, it's not that I have a step for that, right? It's not that it's one day in which I scan the whole testing suite and I look at how they are setting up the environment. But in some cases, it's useful to go to the tests. Just because you see, for instance, expected values of state variables, for example, or thresholds or constants or whatever they are setting up in the deployment scripts or in the testing script, right? So going over the test will give you an idea of how the system is about to be set up, how the system expected to work, how the system handles certain scenarios, what are the values of state variables, what are expected ranges in which they should be set up at the beginning or over time. Oh, for instance, if you have a contract that is behaving as a state machine, you might have a certain test that moves through that state machine. And within those tests might give you examples of actual use cases and scenarios of the system. So in those, in that sense, they are super useful. The problem is, I don't know if we are going to find like a very complex test in here. This seems to be like very well written. So they kudos to the ANS guys, but you will find sometimes that some tests some test suites of some projects are like very complex, very difficult to read, very difficult to follow. And you don't want to go that deep into that rabbit hole, right? 
because otherwise you will spend two days just trying to make sense of one test when you actually should be looking at solidity code. So yes, looking at tests is useful, but don't overdo it. That's my advice. Cool. So I think at this point, we have a good idea of your overall process. So you're approaching it as you feel you want to approach it, right? So maybe you're looking at a little bit of the docs, you're getting some context for what the code should be doing. Then you're making that little notion spreadsheet. You're saying, okay, I'm going to start with the smallest Lego. I'm going to get a good idea of what those do. I'm going to build up my understanding of the code as I go along. I'm going to be asking questions in the code itself that I'm going to come back to. I'm going to see if it makes sense. If I find a bug, I'm marking it as a bug. I'm trying to write up. Maybe I write a test to verify that it's actually a bug. So I guess at this point, what's the next step? Are we wrapping up now? Are we writing the report up? Are we doing a second check, doing validation? Are we going through the code again? What are we on to now? What do we do next? The thing is, I always get the feeling that you can be looking at a system forever. It, there's always one additional line that you can check. There's always one additional attack that you can think of, one additional potential cause, my vulnerability and everything. So what I do is I time bound myself, right? If you're working for a client, you are definitely time bounded. Uh, you have a deadline and you have to ship the report and you will have to be organized in such a way that by the end that you have to deliver the audit, the report is ready. And from that point of view, you have to be fast enough in, in reviewing the contracts and be able to grow, to have a certain level of confidence when you're shipping the report that you did your best and you thought of every single possible attack or vulnerability that you could think of in that limited amount of time. And then actually, so before we finish that thought, I do want to come back to this, but you said, yes. hey, like, I, I think I've thought of every attack vulnerability. When you're going through this code, how are you thinking of different attacks? Like when you're looking at a piece of code, is it just the more code you look at, the more you get familiar with different attacks? Is it your, you have a checklist of, okay, I'm looking for this attack. How do you get that context of what different types of attacks to think of? Yeah, I don't have a checklist. I don't follow checklist. I think I never follow checklist. There's lots of intuition. There's lots of ex very difficult to translate experience in doing it. I think it, it comes a little bit with the, this idea that I started auditing very basic ERC20s and DeFi wasn't even a thing. And little by little, the audits that I got to do were growing in complexity, right? So I started even in my career, like auditing the Legos that then became DeFi, that then became more important things. So these days is, I don't, again, I don't have a checklist. It's like, I have this adversarial mindset or try to at least in thinking, how can I trick this function? How can I make this part of the system behave in such a way that is not expected? It's quite difficult to actually put into words. You have, there are heuristic, there are things that should be smelly when you are auditing, right? So if you see, for example, an external call being done to an attacker control address, that could probably be open for re-entrances or that could be open for, I know, denial of services or whatever. If there are 100 ERC-20 tokens where you know that ERC-20 tokens have their own different natures and there are different things in there. If you have assembly, you have to make sure that some compiler checks that are removed by assembly are actually being done or otherwise there could be problems and so on and so forth. So I think that in my head, I have classifications of vulnerabilities for things that could happen in different components of the systems. And I think that to some extent, naturally, I try to go those ways. There's lots of knowledge that can come from every single day reading vulnerability reports, every single day or reading responsible disclosures that are published, reading all these reports. Actually, writing them vulnerable DeFi has taught me lots of things. I read the reports from Unify, from Code Arena, like not every single one, but the ones that I find interesting. I read newsletters, like, I don't know, I have this constant influx of security-related information to Solidity that little by little, I think you start growing the intuitions, the experience that actually help you identify quickly things that can happen in smart contracts. I wonder how other people think about this, right? I wonder if other people have, I don't know, 500 items, checklists, and things they check in every single line of Solidity Coast. That's, I don't know, that's not my case. So the summary here of the feedback is just keep 
auditing, keep having a security mindset, read as much information as you can, and you'll just keep growing that intuition. Yeah. And always remember that you can miss things. There's no perfect auditor. I think that everybody has audited sufficient enough and complex enough systems. They have all missed issues. And it's okay. Security is a, it's a thing that we have to approach from many different angles. And auditing is just one thing that must be done, but it's not the only one, right? So there are multiple things in which you should be approaching like the security of a system. So knowing that you're doing your best in the limited time that you have, knowing that you're putting your best effort, knowing that you are every day growing your skills, learning and trying to think of different attacks, reading on different exploits that other people are publishing, that grows an intuition and experience in you, along with the idea that, well, perhaps I will miss things, right? But as long as I can keep contributing value to the clients, as long as like, I can contribute to, the, to their system safety, I will, I know, sleep at night probably. Great. And then I know we, we only have a few minutes left here. I do want to get back to that question. Like, oh, like how do we wrap it up? Like what's the next step? But real quickly, hey, did you mention your read past reports from Unify and C4 regularly? What do you think of its importance? So I know you said you, you did do that. You'll read reports, but yeah. What do you think of the importance of reading past reports regularly? I think it's how, what other ways are there for learning, right? From looking at the sky, walking in the park. I don't know. You have to, you have to be reading what the other people are publishing. Well, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to turn that into a TikTok too, actually. What do you think of the importance of reading other reports? I don't know. What, how else are you going to learn <laughs> looking at the sky, walking in the park? That's no, good. Like really, I don't know it all, right? Hans, you know, like somebody, probably somebody found something that I didn't find. And I will actually learn from that, right? So as long as they publish it, I can read, I can understand it. I won't be reading everything. If you look at the audit reports from most auditing firms, they are incredibly long and complex and you won't have like too much time and context and even willingness to read all of that, right? But you can go through the criticals or through the highs and try to get a sense of what it's that people are reporting these days, right? What is it that people are disclosing on Immunify these days, whatever platform there is out there. I think it's... Fundamental, yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. So yeah, so let's get back to the other question. You're, you've gone through it. The time box is reaching its end. Yeah. How do you wrap up? Yeah. Something that I always say is to audit, to me is 50% funding vulnerabilities and 50% delivering readable report, right? So the writing part to me at least is quite fundamental is this way in which you can show value in which the way in which you can communicate with your client, with the community, with whoever is reading your report, the result of all the knowledge that you have and all the things that you did is in the report, right? So you have to put extra care in making it like top quality. That's, I have always strived for that. I know it's not that easy. I know it takes time, but at least to me, like being precise and clear and straightforward in the way that you communicate vulnerabilities. It's very fundamental. By the end of the audit, I should have hopefully multiple issues that I have found and I'm able to share with the client. I compile all of those. You would put them like ordered by severity in the report. On top of that, in the report, you would usually include a system overview. You would include what are the different roles, what are different perhaps approaches that you took or tools that you run or whatever that you did during the audit, trying to explain the auditing process. Perhaps some people do that. Then you have the list of the issues and yeah, you pack it up, you send it out to the client. And afterwards, usually the audit is not done yet. The client will read the report. We have questions. You can even meet with the client to discuss the different parts of the report. You can even talk about severities, discuss where some things are to be included in the report. Some things are not to be included in the report, like whatever you want to do with that. And once the client starts fixing the issues, they will send you the fixes for the issues. And what you have to do at that point is actually review the fixes and make sure that not only the vulnerability that you highlighted in the report is fixed, but actually this has been introduced by the fix, right? So two things, making sure it's fixed and no new things got included. So that's a tricky part, but it's super important. It shouldn't be that overlooked because it's not that difficult to try to fix something and at the same time breaking some other thing. So people should be, I think, very careful with how they handle the fixes. 
And yeah, once that's done, engagement is done and hopefully you did things well, you provided value and the client will call you again and you will, I know, audit the next version or whatever. Let's say you give your audit report, you've done your time box, you've done as much as you can, you think you did a good job and they go, okay, great. We're going to deploy. They deploy mainnet. Four months goes by. Oh my God, $100 million hack. They've ended it up on wrecked. What do you do? What happens? And I know that's a very loaded question, but I think it's something a lot of auditors have in the back of their mind. They go, fuck, I don't want to end up on wrecked. I want to do a good job. I really hope they don't get hacked. Like, what do you do when that does happen? Because the more times you audit, the more likely it's going to happen. So what do you do in that scenario? And then has that ever happened to you? You don't have to answer that if you don't want to. (laughs) I will start with the, let me approach you slowly. Okay. So I will first say, I have always been of the idea. I know some people will disagree with this. Perhaps it's an unpopular opinion, but I have always been of the idea that a security code review, like an audit, should be valuable enough on comprehensively as as, as an effort that I do on a code base beyond the fact that I find or not find a critical issue, okay? So I should be able to provide value to whoever is working with me, to whoever is trusting me, beyond the fact that I did or did not find a critical issue. Obviously, obviously, the less critical issues that you miss, the better, the safer you will be, the more reputation that you will have in the space, and the more that people will call you and the safer Ethereum will be. And I wouldn't agree with that more. But again, I don't think auditors are the sole responsibles of finding or not finding an issue or an issue being exploited in mainnet or not. They do have a saying, they do have some degree of of responsibility. Yeah, perhaps because they were actually hired to provide an assessment of the security of the code and they did their best and perhaps they missed something. And that can happen and has happened and will continue to happen. But it's naive to think, in my opinion, that just because an auditor missed something, the whole blame of thing is on the audit. I think that if vulnerability was missed, there's a whole chain of events that happened for that vulnerability to actually be exploited. It was introduced, it wasn't caught in the test, it wasn't caught in peer reviews, then went to auditors to multiple rounds of audits, it wasn't caught that. Then it went to a public contest. Nobody caught it. Then it went to a back warranty program. Nobody paid attention or nobody caught it. And then it went to production. And after four months, somebody exploited it, right? So I think there is a whole chain of events. And perhaps when it was exploited, nobody was monitoring that system or nobody was actually putting runtime security into the, into the security of the smart contract. So that means that nobody was paying attention to certain parameters of the system that actually allowed for the vulnerability to be opened up and many things, right? So what I mean is many things can go wrong. I don't think when something is missed or something is attacked on mainnet is the sole blame of whoever audited it. But as an auditor, depending on the deal that you have with the client, it might be the case that you can actually help, right? You can actually help mitigate the impact of the vulnerability. You can help contain the attack. You can help identify, even do some threat analysis if you have those capabilities in your team to actually identify the hackers, like whatever. If you are to be the trusted security partner of your clients, probably when they are hacked, you want to be there. You want to be there supporting them. And at the end of the day, in reality, your responsibility will be that of, will be, really limited to the agreement that you sign with the client. But given that you want to be trusted, that you want to be supportive, that you want to have a good relationship, you will be there to help them in whatever scenario. Yeah, thank you. That's that's really helpful. I know we're at time here, but yeah, are there any final parting thoughts on this audit process, this smart contract security review world? I don't think so. I think we ended on a good note, right? I think that and this idea of, yeah, just recapping on the idea has one, you can have many auditors show you their auditing process and many ways of doing audits. But at the end of the day, it's up to you to find your own, to find what's best for you, not to be constrained by any checklist or any 
single way of doing things. I think that as you grow, as you read and as you grow as an auditor, you will find your own ways. You will find the things that are most comfortable for you. So go with that. And the second thing to recap is I don't think that you are bulletproof, right? You're a human. You might make mistakes as an auditor. Do your best in the limited time that you have. Help protect Pidium applications with all that you have, with all the team that you have and all the skills that you have. But at the end of the day, things can happen. And yeah, we will continue learning. Awesome. Tencho, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for all you've done for the Web3 community. And I'm sure everyone will get a lot from this. Okay, Patrick, thank you for inviting me. Bye. Bye.